0: So, uh, Molly, Mary O'Brien, and Chris Wade are um, our, 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 our final co reader, which is cool. I don't think we ever actually had anyone do that before, and that's, I'm excited, and you should be too. Um, yeah, they're the co host of And Introducing, which is a podcast about, about, in case you haven't listened to it, you should, about words, about music, about books, about music, writing about music. Uh, Molly is a video producer at. Well and good and Chris is producer at Chapel Trap House, so um Chris, <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> you okay, okay. know, yeah, right. I'm I'm right. T- exactly. We're We're take catch. a load off, you know. We're uh, yeah. podcasters, so we, we sit po- down. we <laughs> pod sitting yeah, down. I'm so. like you stand up writers. <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> 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 yeah, let's, uh hi,
0: uh, I'm Chris Wade.
1: I'm Molly O'Brien.
0: And welcome to Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. Uh, no, we do this show where we, um, typically every episode, Molly reads a memoir by a musician uh, and then tells me about it, and then we joke about them and talk about music and scenes and musicians and how most of them are just very dumb people, but some of them have a real keen insight into art and beauty, uh, but mostly just dumb, dumb Guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, one of the main features of most of these memoirs is that uh, uh, the thing that recurs most often is the media res opening. Uh, that I would say like ninety percent of the time. The first, the first uh, uh, thing that we see is a scene from the middle, a dramatic scene from the middle of somebody's life. This is our favorite, um, our favorite, our favorite. Trend. So uh, here's Molly with a few of these.
1: Yeah, so um, everyone likes to start their life story at their low point I guess because it means that there's nowhere to go but up, so uh, a couple of the res moments that we've seen so far is um, Slash from Guns N' Roses having a very minor but crucial heart attack on stage. Um, Anthony Kiedis buying a little bit of heroin before a concert, which is going to make him very late for the concert. Um, Taboo from the Black Eyed Peas, who we thought was the least important member of the Black Eyed Peas, but he's actually the second least important member of the Black Eyed Peas because he wrote a memoir. Um, he, we, we found him in jail for a DUI um, and he was very down But he said When your tribe Is the black eyed peas When you've worked So damn hard To manifest a dream There is no defeat Except for self defeat Which is something I think we can all learn From taboo. Um Marilyn Manson Was uh, creeping around In his grandfather's basement uh, And he found a collection Of ancient dildos So that was fun um, It definitely turned Marilyn Manson Into the, the, the guy He is today The Manson, so, he, is. The man, the Manson he is today So we, what we did was actually took an opportunity mostly to prove that these these memoirs are not particularly hard to write. Uh, but we wrote our own fake in media res moments to fake memoirs for fake musicians.
0: I wouldn't disparage them by calling them fake. They're uh, imagined 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 memoir openings.
1: Yes, but they could have happened, and some of
0: them were inspired by by real things. And perhaps um, they will happen.
1: Yeah, they have. Maybe they have happened. People haven't read about it yet. Uh, Okay, so let's let's start with the first one. (sighs) Everything's dark. Then the darkness brightens to blinding white. The sound of static is replaced by a dull roar and then a loud roar. The roar of a crowd. A crowd of 50,000 people. I know why they're here. They're here for me. (laughs) I realize where I am. Oh, yes. I'm on stage at an arena full of fans of Mistress Lolita, the band I've led for six rocking years. (laughs) Bright lights shine down on me. Fog hangs in the air from where it spurted from fog machines just moments ago. There are so many smells. The smells of pyrotechnic smoke from our kick-ass pyro, the smell of marijuana and beer belches wafting from the crowd, the smell of our bassist Danny Danger Robinson's cologne, which happens to be Obsession for Men by Calvin Klein. Danny's leaning over me, peering down with a concerned look on his face. His Gibson Thunderbird dangles over my head, but instead of the usual sublime barrage of lightning-fast bass notes that serve as the humming engine to our heavy metal machine that come from his instrument, There's only silence. Why is he looking down at me? I'm flat on my back, on the ground, in front of 50,000 people. How long have I been here? Davy helps me up. I see stars, but not the usual kind of stars I see when I sit up right after snorting a few fat lines of cocaine with my good friend David Lee Roth. I'm becoming aware of a pain in the back of my head. A pain getting sharper than the razor blade I used to cut the fat lines of cocaine I do with my good friend David Lee Roth. <laughs> I look to my left, Zeus Plato, our guitarist, is giving me an incredulous look, a look that says, Dude, how could you? I look behind me, Stan the man Toledo sits at his drum kit, chugging a Miller light and avoiding eye contact. Only Davy seems to care what happens to me. What happened to me? In front of me, the mic stand remains upright, cradling the only conduit of music I was ever made to touch. The microphone, the amplifier of my voice. My voice, the only true gift I possess. I don't know what happened. Hell, I barely know my own name at this moment, but I walk toward the microphone because it's the only home I know. I scream into the mic as if guided by a higher power. You can try to kill rock and roll, but it won't die! The crowd roars. A wave of dizziness and pain overtakes me, and my world fades to black once more. I wake up backstage, an IV in my arm, a paramedic checking my blood pressure. My bandmates are gone, my head is throbbing. Some cocaine would be nice right about now. I vaguely remember running out of cocaine right before the show started. Our manager pulls up a chair next to me, frowning soberly. He's the only sober-looking man I see on a regular (laughs) basis, if I'm being perfectly honest. And in this book, as I promised on the jacket copy, I'm being very... Honest. (laughs) Rocky, you want to know what happened? He asked. I nod. You got through one song. You chugged about half a fifth of Jack Daniels. You threw the rest of the Jack Daniels into the audience. You asked if anyone in the audience had any cocaine they could share with you. You asked it on the microphone. To 50,000 people, many of whom were literal children. You passed out. You cracked your head open. You woke up and you fell down again. He starts getting all worked up. Look what you're doing to yourself. You know what? Destroy yourself all you want, but don't destroy the band you love. He got up, shoved the chair away as he stormed out of the room. Tears began forming behind my eyes. My band. My talent. My health. It could all slip away in an instant. I remember the words to one of Mistress Lolita's recent chart-busting hits, Rock Me Too Hard. (laughs) Hearts aflame, two lovers caged. I'm afraid I won't see another day. Oh, little lady. You rock me too hard. I sit on my stretcher, alone and pathetic. Have I been rocking myself too hard? <laughs> uh,
0: the airlock had blown open. My entire life was being sucked into space before my eyes. Everything I owned was being carried out of my 54th floor apartment, one object at a time entire lifestyle crumbling like a fine Italian biscotti my glass top dining room table my $13,000 espresso machine several large niggle prints my new Roland model MS-13 drum machine console all <laughs> paraded away in front of me by the indifferent goons sent by Precipice Records I had Gary Hold my friend and lifelong collaborator on the phone he was crying desperately trying to find a way to get back to the states from his vacation yachting off Majorca. Neither of us saw this coming. After our last album, Hot Sweat failed to chart any singles, Prestige had suddenly decided to cancel our record deal. Just like that, A successful career, erased. <laughs> it was 1987 and after 17 years of chart-topping success, the bottom had fallen out and it seemed like the hit factory that was Holden Rice was coming apart at the seams. Boxes <laughs> of clothes, my Italian leather driving gloves, the Ysse Laurent, Custom-made ski bibs, the 13 different leather jumpsuits that had become my signature stage look. Well, me and Eddie Murphy, but he stole that from me. (laughs) Box after box of beautiful leather goods, white blazers, neon chiffon button downs, gone, gone, gone. (laughs) Who was I supposed to be without my look? Who will John Rice be after this? I was still trying to put it all together. It seemed impossible. Why was all this, this entire life, theirs and not mine? Holden Rice had charted 34 singles, six number one hits, 13 gold or platinum albums, and yet, here I was, dead broke. Out of pile of receipts in my hands, pretending like I had any understanding of my finances. Maybe if I showed these movers I saw had the tags from ABC, Carpet, and Home, they wouldn't be dragging my bright pink Art Deco sofa with mere top armrests out the door. <laughs> As I would later find out when I was actually bright enough to hire my own accountant. It turns out that signing over rights for royalties and distribution to your managers, allowing your record company to pay out your advances in the forms of bricks of cash sewn into the lining of brand new Burberry jackets was not good strategies for long-term financial security. <laughs> Maintaining a $4,000 a month coke habit also did not help in any fiduciary sense. Gary was screaming about something in my ear, trying to speak over the sea air and the din of a thousand Mayorkan seagulls squealing in the sky simultaneously. He was talking about a new deal he was putting together, where we're going to present an MTV Video Music Award or something that would put us back in front of the kids. That will sell again. I knew who was grasping at straws. MTV had no room for a pair of 40-something white R&B smooth pop crooners. No (laughs) space for that in between their sexy young madonnas and their beastie boys. (laughs) Our sound was still the sound of the Studio 54 after party. I thought about all those wonderful nights drinking espressos with French models at 4 a.m. as our classic tracks like Trouble Girl, Dangerous Woman, or Girl, Woman, Lady blasted out brand new Sony stereo tape. Blasted out the brand new Sony stereo tape and record rack with glistening faux walnut finish, the stereo that was now being carried out of my front door. God, those were the days. we have eaten a lot. We tried to hang with those cur- the current music scene. In order to become relevant, I'd have to do something like learn to break dance, which would be impossible after my years of minor ankle injuries from skiing various
1: Alps.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then it was done. The door closed and I was alone on the floor of my empty penthouse, an alien in my own life. I thought about Gary, how he'd come from nothing to the absolute top, and how we were back here again. But if I was going to look forward, I had to look back. This is that story. 17 years of songs, harmonies, coordinated snappings, oohs and ahs, and girls, women, and ladies.
1: The Grammy's after party was in full swing at Nobu. Crystal chandeliers twinkled from above and glasses of champagne twinkled from below. The atmosphere was heady. Madonna was at a corner booth, whispering into the ear of her favorite backup dancer of the moment. Justin Timberlake was flirting with the entire cast of friends at once. Eminem scowled nearby, interacting with no one, scribbling furiously on a cocktail napkin. It was a galaxy of music celebrities at this party, but no constellation was shining as brightly as the group I belonged to. Us girls had walked away from the Grammy ceremony with an unprecedented five trophies for our third album, The Power of She. I was a few glasses of champagne deep, but I couldn't refuse when another tray arrived. I leaned over to our table, laden with dragon rolls no one was eating, to clink glasses with my bandmate and BFF, Shayla Marie. Shayla was a sight to behold that night. She glowed from head to toe, which was just as well, considering she'd print for hours to get ready, even getting her spray tan scraped off and redone from scratch when she wasn't happy with the original effort. (laughs) Did her hair extensions flow from the crown of her head, perhaps a tad unnaturally? Well, it wasn't up to me to say. Was the ample perky cleavage revealed by her gold Versace gown a bit much? You wouldn't hear it from me. (laughs) Shayla and I had split the lead vocals on the power of she more or less down the middle, so I considered this wedding night our dual victory. Her sexy, soft coos accented the faster dance numbers and my strong belting anchored the ballads and gave the album more emotional weight. Ever since the two of us had been handpicked from a talent competition in a mall in Tallahassee, chosen to fulfill our manager Rudy's lifelong vision for a world-dominating badass female pop group, we've complimented each other so perfectly. She was blonde, I was brunette. She was sugar, I was spice. She was effervescent, and I was... Mysterious. The other two members of us girls, Sweet Haley, who mostly talked about her pets in interviews, and Bad Girl Rosanna, who had tattoos, both pulled their weight in the group. But what can I say? In an ensemble, naturally, attention naturally flows toward the focal points, and the focal points had always been Shayla and me. Here's to us, babe, I said to her, holding my glass toward her. When she tapped it with her own, she managed just a faint smile with her lips and no smile at all with her eyes. I furrowed my brow. She was acting strange. she barely spoken after our accepted speech in which we'd taken turns thanking Rudy, our fans, and God. Usually she burbled with friendly chatter, talking the ears off all manner of hairdressers, drivers, handlers, and me. But I'd never seen her so withdrawn. The night blurred into a whirlwind of dancing and champagne and I lost track of Shayla completely. It wasn't until the limo ride back to our hotel that we found each other within earshot again. We piled in, sweaty and exhausted. The Grammy statuettes we'd received and taken photos with long since reclaimed by the award organizers. Haley fell asleep, and then Rosanna fell asleep on top of Haley, and it was just me and Shayla. I looked across the limo at her. The carefully applied foundation that had contoured her cleavage had melted into a smudged mess. There was body glitter on her face and face glitter on her body. Her (laughs) boobs were still perky, but she looked tired. She bit her lip and glanced over at me. Leanne, I have to tell you something. What, I asked. Had the backup dancer she'd been sleeping with gotten her pregnant? Had her tendency to snort Ritalin to keep her energy up for late night music video shoots gotten a little out of hand? I'm going solo. She let out a whoosh of a sigh as if she'd been holding her breath. (laughs) What? I arranged it with Rudy. A three album solo deal. I start recording next week taking a hiatus from the group i didn't know how to take it in it felt like the plush walls of the limo were closing in on me Sheila, we just won five grammys as a group rudy says that he says that however many statues we win it wouldn't compare to what i can do to on my own she bit her lip again and smiled an apologetic smile at me trying to shore up reserves of the ditzy coquettishness that had been her hallmark in our group But in that moment, I saw Shayla with new eyes. She looked just like a Grammy statuette, golden, sleek, and totally blank. What was going on in her head, I no longer knew. (laughs) Would she go on to win another 18 Grammys by herself? Yes. (laughs) As well as seven VMAs, a Video Vanguard Award, and a Golden Globe for her supporting role in Eminem's ABC sitcom, Marshall's House? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Did she also win 17 Choice Awards surfboards and then turn around and donate those surfboards to surfers in need? Also yes. Was she named People's Most Beautiful Woman four years in a row, failing to clinch the fifth year only because she wrote an open letter to People begging them not to give her the title again and saying the real winners of Most Beautiful Women should be all women all over the world because everyone is beautiful in their own unique way? That too. You Shayla's recent best-selling memoir The Song Has Just Begun in which I was painted in a less than flattering light. Is this book a response to my portrayal in her her book? No. This is my story. And for a part of my life my story was intertwined with Shayla's story. So when I get real about my life, I'm going to get real about Shayla's. So buckle up because even the most luxurious limo rides get a little bumpy sometimes.
0: Molson whizzed past my ear and shattered on the Greenwood wall behind me. Now we were in the shit. Six huge French-Canadian punks decked head to toe in spikes and patches of weird French language tape labels stared us down, blocking the one door. Clearly they had not enjoyed the set. I could sense our bassist Buzz Bilson tensing up next to me, scanning the room for something he could use as a weapon. I knew in a pinch he'd swing his beloved Music Man Stingray at them, but shit, man, if he cracked that fucker, it was another two hundred out of the coffers, and we were already in the red for this tour. In that moment, I didn't even care if we got our asses beat. I was just trying to remember where we were supposed to be tomorrow night or the night after, and how long it would take us to get our van there. See, the thing about touring is you eventually become hermetic. Yeah. <laughs> See the thing about touring is you eventually become this hermetically sealed little world, decoupled from time, space, or reason. We're on the tail end of playing something over 200 nights out this year, ten straight months of nothing but van load and show, beers and trucker speed until blackout sleep, van repeat. I couldn't remember where the fuck we were. Shawanigan, Saguenay. Something was, everything was in fucking French, and everyone here were just sweaty sons of sons of sons of sons of fur trappers and Jesus Christ. All of us, all any of us wanted was maybe enough money to take the next, to make the next date, or maybe by the grace of God getting laid. And how we were, were we supposed to know they were so goddamn sensitive about the whole Quebec independence thing here? <laughs> yeah,
1: Which is of course
0: where this all started. Sawtooth was, was a Chicago band. We got in your face. We all came up watching Albini get on stage with Big Black and spew truly ridiculous shit until the crowd just wanted wanted to just lynch him. And it ruled, it got people riled, it got them moving. We learned early on that it was way more fun playing for a crowd of strangers who wanted to beat the shit out of you than playing for a crowd of strangers who just didn't care. So when our drummer Fred Montez heard a bunch of these Canadian frogs hollering Quebec independique during load-in. He thought it'd be hilarious to draw a big fuck Quebec independique on the bass row. But sure, why not? Get a rise, get them angry. Then pummel them into submission with our unstoppable set of industrial punk. <laughs> well, let me tell you, you did not feck. <laughs> let me tell you, you did not fuck with the Quebecois separatists. <laughs> Johnny Ox, our current guitarist, number four of six if you're counting. Started saying something in French. This motherfucker knows French. I knew he came from Winneka and went to some private school, but I was more used to seeing this guy piss himself drunk in die bar bathrooms. Pardon my French. (laughs) He mumbled out. This was not, apparently, the gently diffusing bon mot he'd intended to ask. The Separatists rushed us. We started brawling. I was tired. I was so hungry. What was the last full meal I had? That poutine from a convenience store under the Flophouse in Montreal? I felt the heavy rings of the hand of the biker motherfucker plow into my gut. Fine. Get it over with. Another night not getting paid. Another night getting the shit kicked out of us by punk creeps and some dog will play again next year to the same result. I could hear Buzz laughing. And for some reason, I started laughing too. Shit's just funny, man. Why do we put ourselves through this? <laughs> because we were Sawtooth. And Sawtooth fucking loves playing hard, fast rock and roll music for hard, fast people. <laughs> We'd do it again tomorrow, and the next night, and the next week, and the next month, and the next year. And day by day, show by show, we got better. 14,000 shows, 12 albums, one Grammy nomination lost to fucking Foo Fighters, of course. <laughs> one off Broadway musical and now feature-length biopic in development later, here I am. I'm Dale Piss, <laughs> and this is my story. <laughs> yeah. That's our thing. Uh wasn't gonna end introducising, and we